Now we're working our way through the book of Colossians, and I ask, if you will, to please turn to the first chapter as we read verses 15 through 20. Last week we saw that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now the Apostle Paul gives to us a description of who this Christ is who redeems us. I'll be quoting more than I ordinarily would in a sermon because there are those who have written upon Colossians, especially in the past, who have said things that I just, I just can't help myself. I have to bring it to you because I think it's so wonderful and I want you to hear it as well. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word through Christ our Lord. Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15, this is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, now in this passage we come to the dizzying heights. Pastor McDonald and I were discussing this and other passages like it recently, and we made the observation that were our attention so focused on Christ, so focused on passages like these, that so much that preoccupies us would seem petty? Remember, Paul is concerned that this church planted by Epaphras is in danger of being carried away into false teaching. It was an eclectic philosophy comprising an exclusive spirit, a spiritual caste system, speculative views on creation, a denial of the deity of Christ, a denial of the humanity of Christ with all sorts of ethical implications. And don't let me say, the church still is in danger when she strays from God's word and when she strays from the Christ of the Bible. The heretics thought that Christ was not enough. And that is always, always the hallmark of heresy. A compromised view of Christ's person, a compromised view of Christ's work. It matters not whether it's a cult such as the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or whether it is um, liberal Christianity calling itself Christianity in either case or in other ways. The hallmark of heresy is a compromised view of Christ. Well, nothing is more important than this. Who is Christ? What did he come to do? Why was he able to accomplish what he did? Why is he the all-sufficient Savior? And verses 15 through 20 answer those questions for us. First of all, then, as we turn to the text, will you see with me that Christ is God the Creator and the Sustainer of creation? 
Verses 15 and 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is, this is who He is, He is the image of the invisible God. And the word that is used there, icon, from which we derive of course our term icon, there's no definite article and so it's speaking of His quality as the image of God. Well, it means this, to quote a Greek grammarian, in Greek thought an image shares in reality that it represents. Christ is the perfect likeness of God. The Word contains the idea of representation and manifestation. The Word points to His revealing the Father and His pre-existence. You see, God only can be fully and completely pictured by God Himself. We look at the creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth shows His handiwork. There we see something of God and His character imaged, but never can we see God fully imaged in nature. We are created in God's image, though fallen, but even in our unfallen state we could not completely and utterly image the true and the living God. But Christ is the perfect likeness because He shares the essence of the Father because He is God Himself. God in His essence cannot be seen. Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Timothy that He dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. But when the Son becomes incarnate, you see God. A.T. Robertson put it this way, Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father as He was before the Incarnation and is now. And John 1.18 tells us that when the Son became incarnate He exegeted the Father for us. He actually unpacks for us who the Father is because He shares His essence. And so the whole idea of visibility is contained in this notion of image. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And in His incarnation He revealed the heart of the Father and He could be touched and He could be seen and talked with and He could eat with His disciples. And there you see Him healing a leper, there touching a blind man or calming the sea or weeping over Jerusalem. This was the Son of His love. Not simply the finest flowering of humanity or the highest of evolved beings. No, no. This was the Son of His love, the second person of the Trinity. And in verse 15 we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Again, no definite article speaking of His quality. The term does not mean that Christ was created it means pre-existence. It means uniqueness. It means holding sway over creation. The idea of firstborn here means priority. It means sovereignty over all creation. The idea was to point back to the rights and privileges of the firstborn, not to imply a beginning. Eddie, in his great commentary says, the firstborn was his father's representative and acted in his father's name. The father is invisible but the universe is not left without a palpable God. So priority and sovereignty over every created thing. 
And then in verse 16, he gives to us a bold-faced statement that Christ is the Creator. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is the creator of the thrones. He is higher than the angelic beings because he is the creator of angelic beings. He is the creator of dominions. He is creator of authorities. He is the creator of spiritual hierarchies. Matter did not create itself. Neither did angelic spirits create themselves. And since he is before all things, he cannot himself be a creature And in John 1-3, we read in a way that corresponds to this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Ellicott says, Christ is the creative center of all things, the causal element of their existence. And that is beautifully put, and in accord with Paul's theology. He is the creator, as we say, and have sung at Christmas, creator of the stars of night, thy people's everlasting light, O Christ, thou Savior of us all, we pray thee, hear us when we call. Your Savior is the creator of the stars at night. Not only is he the creator, but verse 17 tells us that he is the sustainer of what he has created. He is before all things, that's his preexistence, and in him all things hold together. In him all things cohere. He impresses upon creation The unity and solidarity which makes it a cosmos instead of a chaos, said J.B. Lightfoot. So why do the atoms cohere? Why do the galaxies function? It is all because Jesus Christ, the Creator, sustains them in His infinite power. And this is the God who became incarnate. This is the God who came into this world to save us from our sins. And so I ask you, even having gotten through just these verses, do you see something of his dignity here? Do you see his worth? Do you see his infinite greatness? Again, one of the old writers, his arm upholds the universe, and if it were withdrawn, all things would fade into their original non-existence. His great empire depends upon him in all its provinces, life, mind, sensation, and matter, atoms beneath us to which geology has not descended, and stars beyond to which astronomy has never penetrated. He feeds the sun with fuel and veils the moon in beauty. And in the passage we read together earlier, Pastor MacDonald read to us from the 40th chapter of Isaiah, I hope you saw the high and exalted Jehovah here, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel. He is the one before whom all nations are as but a drop in the bucket. He is the one who says, to whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And Paul the Apostle in Colossians 1 tells you that this great exalted Jehovah of Isaiah 40 is God himself, is Christ himself, the one who became incarnate and died for our sins. The God of Genesis 1 is the baby of Luke 2. 
Now, having mentioned Lightfoot, let me read to you his paraphrase of verses 15 through 17. Listen attentively, will you? He is the perfect image, the visible representation of the unseen God. He is the firstborn, the absolute heir of the Father, begotten before all ages. The Lord of the universe by virtue of primogenitor, and by virtue also of creative agency. For in and through him the whole world was created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible to the outward eye, and things cognizable by the inward perception. His supremacy is absolute and universal. All powers in heaven and earth are subject to him. This subjection extends even to the most exalted and most potent of angelic beings, whether they be called thrones or dominations or princedoms or powers or whatever title of dignity men may confer upon them. Yes, he is the first and he is the last. Through him, as the mediatorial word, the universe has been created, and unto him, as the final goal, it is tending. In him is no before or after. He is pre-existent and self-existent before all worlds and in Him. As the binding and sustaining power, universal nature coheres and exists. Do you not within your heart bow before the Lord in worship and praise to consider that this is your Christ? Your Christ, your Redeemer, who saves you by His own shed blood, Secondly, we see in the text that Christ is the head of the body, the church, verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He is the creator of creation, but also He is the creator of the new creation. He is the head of the church. Head, of course, means sovereign. He is the beginning, the source of life, the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection from the dead entitles him to be called also the head of the church. But here's the point I want you to see. This great God who created, this great God who sustains, is the God who became incarnate and he endured and passed through death. Which is why we Christians have a a certain hope of the resurrection in the last day. That's why during this past Christmas season we could sing so vigorously, Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice, Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. And he is head over all things, and he passed through death, and he conquered it, The text tells us that in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be preeminent over the creation that he created. That he might be preeminent over us, over the church. That he might be preeminent over death. That he might be preeminent over life. Indeed, the word is impossible over all things. Christ Jesus is preeminent imminent. And one day everyone will acknowledge the preeminence of Jesus Christ, even those who oppose and deny him now. But then as we survey these verses, notice with me thirdly that Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the head of the church, the one who conquered death, is also Christ the reconciler 
the reconciler of sinners. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And even though I'll have to say more about this next time, here we have the incarnate Lord. His person is stressed and he is the one who is the pleroma, the plenitude, the plenitude of the deity was pleased to dwell in him permanently. So that we also read in chapter 2 verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And here he uses a word that is used by the heretics. He has used the word gnosis, knowledge, already that was used by the heretics. Now he takes one of their very words, pleroma, fullness, and he says, don't you see, fullness is not to be found in your philosophical viewpoint Fullness is to be found in Jesus Christ, for all the fullness of the deity dwells in him bodily. As Lightfoot so beautifully put it, he is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. And that is why he can be the reconciler. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His person is stressed. Here is who he is. And because of who he is, his work is stressed. This is what he achieved and accomplished for us sinners. He is the restorer of this fallen world. He brings harmony between heaven and earth. And he does this through the blood of his cross. So the baby born of the virgin in Bethlehem, who was he? He was God in the flesh who made peace through his shed blood. From sin and death he saves us. Now I know that that's a quick survey of the verses and their meanings. But I hope nonetheless full and clear. Now let's together work out a few directions of application. Things we want to take with us as we contemplate the greatness and dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me first of all say this. Does not the portrait of Christ take your breath away that we've read here? Behold your God. The implications and applications are extensive And I think we want to begin by simply saying this is lofty. H.C.G. Mool once called Paul the adoring theologian. And that's a really good title. It staggers the mind to contemplate these things. But we are all as Christians called to be adoring theologians. And so every time we confess with the Nicene Creed or sing the words, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, we are becoming adoring theologians. Somewhere John Owen says essentially that the more sublime and glorious are the things that we believe and dwell upon, the more we are changed into the image of God as we exercise faith in those things. And that's true. Young people, especially you, I want to challenge you to think deep thoughts, serious thoughts, godly thoughts, biblical thoughts, high and lofty thoughts, worthy thoughts, thoughts that dwell on the person and work of Christ 
and to do that now and develop that habit throughout a lifetime. And if you will so do, the Holy Spirit will use that exercise of faith to conform you to the image of this Christ of whom we've read in this passage. The true greatness and comfort of the incarnation is seen here. We have just reflected much upon the incarnation of Christ in the Christmas season here at Covenant. Who is He? God in the flesh. Just look at this description that we read here. This is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who assumed human nature. And I am amazed, utterly amazed, to consider that this great, dignified, exalted Christ would come into the world to save a sinner like me. Are you so amazed? Why did He assume our flesh? Calvin does a marvelous job with this. He took our poverty to give us riches, our mortality to give us immortality. He descended to elevate us to heaven. And here is our comfort and what comfort it is. God appears to us not in consuming majesty, but He appears to us in humanity. And He is close, very close. God became man as a substitute for sinners on the cross. God became man. And that ascended Christ poured out His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who indwells us even in His exaltation. The dust of earth sits upon the throne of heaven and He's interceding for every one of you believers right now. Well, this is an offense to the world, a scandal, a rock of offense. The world says to us, why don't you Christians just join hands with the religions of the world? Same God, isn't it? Same ethical implications, right? Well, no. We cannot do that. We cannot compromise our Lord. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved Because our incarnate Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because apart from the incarnate Christ who bore the sins of sinners on the cross, there is no grace, there is no freedom, there is no redemption from sin. In view of this, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And if you are here this morning and you think that you can be saved by works that you perform or you think God's going to be merciful to me even if I don't trust His Son, or I can be saved by my philosophical viewpoint as the Gnostics thought in Colossae, or if you think that there is some other way, some other religion, some other person that can save you, the Bible says you're wrong. And the Bible says you need to be confronted with this Christ who alone can redeem, the Christ who is the Creator, the Christ who is the Sustainer, the Christ who is Head and King of His Church, the Christ who is the Reconciler. Only this person could accomplish this work of redemption. No one else could do it. And so we call you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Christ is preeminent. That's what the Scripture tells us here. Look at verse 19, or verses 18 and 19. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is preeminent. Look at who He is. Of course He is preeminent. Therefore, If 
Christ is the preeminent one. Therefore, I should seek to exalt him. Therefore, you should seek to exalt him in your life. If he is preeminent, shouldn't he be preeminent in your heart and in your life and in your choices and in your actions and in mine? Because Christ is such a person that the whole universe revolves around him, your personal universe should revolve around him. Christ is head. Christ is sovereign. And so what are the areas in your life in which you need to seek the preeminence of Christ? Notice again, verse 16 says, He is... is, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that's the same thing, all things, that in all things he might be preeminent. And so Paul stresses it. In verses 16, 17, and 18, he is preeminent over Not some things, a few things, most of your life, some of your life, but every corner of your life. He is preeminent over all things, nothing excluded. Well, does that not demand a Christ-centered life? The heretics degraded Christ by their heresy. Oh, may we not degrade Christ by our lives, but may we exalt him as the preeminent Christ that he is. That means he must grow upward in my esteem and I must grow downward in my own esteem. Christ's exaltation calls me to self-abasement. Some of you may know the name Charles Simeon who was very used of the Lord in the 19th century, preacher in Cambridge, England. He was used especially in the sending of missionaries to the world and especially to India. And as Charles Simeon was preaching once on Colossians 1.18 about the preeminence of Christ, he was a very old man. I can imagine him humped over in the pulpit. He was very, very old. Someone that was there heard Simeon preach this, and he said, The old man seemed to rise and dilate under the impression of his master's glory. As Simeon said, that he might have the preeminence, and he will have it, and he must have it, and he shall have it. Well, this text is so high, I can't reach it. But we who are washed in Jesus' blood... God become man, must walk in faith and faithfulness. And so the call as we consider and contemplate the dignity of Christ is simply this, to give your heart daily to him, to give Christ the preeminence that he deserves. How exalted is Christ, infinitely exalted. And I close with these words of a hymn that's probably not familiar to you, but I love it. We need to learn to sing it. How shall I sing that majesty which angels do admire? Let dust and dust and silence lie. Sing, sing, ye heavenly choir. Thousands of thousands stand around thy throne, O God most high. Ten thousand times ten thousand sound thy praise. 
but who am I? Thy brightness unto them appears, whilst I thy footsteps trace. A sound of God comes to my ears, but they behold thy face. They sing because thou art their son. Lord, send a beam on me. For where heaven is but once begun, there alleluias be. Enlighten with faith's light my heart, inflame it with love's fire. Then shall I sing and bear a part with that celestial choir. I shall, I fear, be dark and cold with all my fire and light. Yet when thou dost accept their gold, Lord, treasure up my might. How great a being, Lord, is thine, which doth all beings keep. Thy knowledge is the only line to sound so vast a deep. Thou art a sea without a shore, a sun without a sphere. Thy time is now and evermore. Thy place is everywhere. And this majestic God assumed human nature, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, obeyed the law that you and I broke, went to a cruel cross, died for us, rose again, ascended on high, and is coming again. Who is this? He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the head. He is the reconciler that in all things he might have the preeminence. And he will have it, and he must have it, and he shall have it. And God's people said, Amen.